Hello, I'm Daniela Vancic, joining you from Cologne, Germany. On behalf of Zocalo Public Square and my colleagues at Democracy International, I'm so pleased to welcome you to this program that explores the question, should global democracy become more direct? We've enjoyed collaborating with our partners at Zocalo, who work to create public events where everyone is invited and all are welcome. Find out more at ZocaloPublicSquare.org. Since its founding in 2008, the Global Forum on Modern Direct Democracy has brought together people from every continent, activists, journalists, academics, local officials, election administrators, and those whose work involves democracy and participation in order to compare the rules and practices of direct democracy. Our goal is to improve and advance a form of governing that gives us more control and choice over our rights and destinies. With this event, we are concluding a week-long online global forum welcoming participants from more than 70 countries, and we are very proud of their work. You can continue to be part of the sharing and efforts going forward by joining Democracy International's global community platform at www.democracy.community. Today's panel discussion on how and whether democracy should become more direct is moderated by Kathleen Miles. She is the executive editor of Noema Magazine, which is published by the Bergrun Institute in Los Angeles, and her career has spanned editing for the World Post, the Huffington Post, and NPR. Over to you, Kathleen. Hello, and welcome to Zocalo Public Square. As Daniela said, I'm Kathleen Miles, executive editor of Noema Magazine, and I will be guiding us through this conversation this evening. We have an all-star group of panelists, so I'm eager to introduce them. Michael Cao is the senior fellow at the Taiwan Foundation for Democracy in Taipei. Previously, he served as Taiwan's representative to the European Union and as deputy minister of foreign affairs. Sherry Davis is the executive director of the participatory budgeting project based in Oakland. And she has been involved in local government for over 15 years. Previously, she launched the first youth participatory budgeting process in the United States for the city of Boston. David Altman is a political scientist and the author of Direct Democracy Worldwide. He is a professor at the Pontificia Universidad Católica de Chile in Santiago and has been a visiting scholar at Harvard, the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, and the University of Gothenburg. Greta Rios is the founder and president of OLIM, a citizen empowerment organization in Mexico City. Greta has also worked for the Mexican government and as an independent consultant on human rights and international humanitarian law. All right, let's jump right in. David, I'm gonna to turn to you first. Uh, is there a relationship at all between the seemingly opposing trends of uh, rising authoritarian nationalism on the one hand and direct democracy on the other? And Maybe you can start off by explaining what direct democracy can refer to, since it's a pretty broad term. Well, well, first of all, thank you for having me here. Um, I would say that it's not a linear link between authoritarianism and direct democracy, despite the fact that uh, direct democracy is a broad group of institutions uh, some of them uh, used by authoritarian leaders, some of them really uh, democratic mechanisms. So there is this link 
uh, it, it should not be made. It doesn't mean that authoritarians use direct democracy more or that direct democracy is necessarily just pure love and peace and democracy. No, it's a broad set of institutions that could, as any institution, could be used and misused. So on that, that on the one hand. And on the other hand, I would say that um, they, 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 the, today they, they are, uh, uh, I mean, democracies are facing extreme uh, stress. You can see that, that everywhere, India, Turkey, the United States, Brazil, even Mexico, I mean, there are so many countries whose democracies are stressed that uh, we should be um, somehow concerned about the status of democracy and how direct democracy or any improvement of institutions could help. Great, thank you. That's a really helpful overview. Um, Sherry, gonna ask you a question now. Um, we are going to discuss the perils and, and challenges of direct democracy. But before we do, would you give us an example or a few um, from around the world or in the US of direct democracy efforts that have worked well and why? Yeah, sure. I think there's a long history of direct democracy opportunities that we've seen work really well. Um, many of them have been brought forward by folks in community that have been doing work to really consider how we think about democracy and how we reckon with trauma that has happened in, in community and how we build thriving and healthy communities for all people. And so, again, I run the participatory budgeting project, so I'm called to name how participatory budgeting as a democratic innovation can be used as a tool to achieve equity, to as a framework for some direct democracy when it comes to budgeting. And I have to mention the work that we've seen started in Brazil over 30 years ago that kind of made headway globally for participatory budgeting to be adopted in so many places across the world. And participatory budgeting as a practice is 10 years new in the United States, but even in that time, we've been able to really see folks shape the community around them, be able to make decisions that reflect community need and address harms that have been reflected in community. And one quick example that I'll, that I'll give is some of the work that's happening in Phoenix, Arizona right now. If you think about Phoenix Union High School District, and they made a really important decision based on what was coming up in community. They said, we need to reimagine what safety looks like, what student-driven safety, how students in our school community define safety. And in order to do that, we need to understand what makes them safe and invest in that. And so they're going through a participatory budgeting process right now where they're reimagining safety together and then investing in what that collective decision around safety looks like for them. That's one example. There, there are so many, but that's a particularly tiny one. Great, well, thank you. It's, it's really helpful to have specific examples like that. And it's a great timely one. Um, Greta, turning to you now, you were very much involved in the saga of Mexico City's citizen participation law. Would you tell us about it and some lessons we might learn from it? Sure. Uh, 
how much time do I have? Because okay. it's a long story. I <laughs> just kidding. I'm gonna make it short. Uh, so last year, the the local congress in Mexico City was uh, trying to to get a new participation, a citizen participation law. And one of the main reasons that they wanted to do this is because the way that the neighborhood committees were working uh, was not very um, government uh, aligned. <laughs> And they wanted to make sure that like no political parties were involved with this with this uh, neighborhood committees. Uh, but the problem was that uh, in this same law uh, were contained things like the participatory budgeting, the public consultation, uh, and, and and other um, instruments for direct democracy. So the Congress did a very uh, bad job, I would say, because uh, they had a deadline and they couldn't meet this deadline. So instead of letting the previous law run its normal course, what they did was decide, uh, they just decided to cancel the, the law. So basically they, they enacted a, a law, a, a legislative uh, reform that said, this law is not gonna apply until we have the new law, which is totally against the law. <laughs> Sorry about being redundant. So I uh, personally had to sue the Congress so, so for them to, to bring that nonsense down. And I, and I won the, the lawsuit. And it was very weird because, uh, number one, I was not sure I was going to win because uh, the, the rule of law in Mexico is questionable sometimes. Uh, but since I won, uh, the, the Congress got like really mad. And instead of, of saying, okay, we made a mistake and we basically canceled uh, participation rights uh, by doing this new law, instead of doing that, they were super mad and they were saying, you know, like, oh, this citizen, she, she, she wants to, to have a, a, like a public post. That's why she's doing this. She's just doing it because she wants attention and stuff. And it was, it was weird, but I think uh, one of the lessons that I learned is that uh, powerful citizenship uh, can really, really help us, uh, you know, bring abuse down. And if you, if you know how to use the tools of democracy, you can reverse uh, authoritarian decisions by the authorities. Great. Well, I, I want to ask um, more about how the law, when it's in place, works and is evolving, but um, that'll come a little bit later. For now, I want to turn to Michael. Um, Taiwan is a country that really has stood out as a pioneer of direct democracy. Would you describe direct democracy's track record so far in the country? Well, it's a very challenging question. <laughs> in some way, we are making progress, but in some way, you know, there are still a lot of confusion. Uh, in fact, uh, the history of uh, direct democracy development started only about uh, 15 uh, years ago. Uh, and the first law was uh, enacted in 2003. Uh, and at that point, you know, uh, the traditional representative government uh, was still very, very strong. Uh, not to talk about, you know, authoritarian control uh, under uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, you know, for 40 years. Uh, and uh, so when the first <laughs> law, uh, reference, uh, uh, referendum law was enacted, uh, it was uh, an attempt uh, of the traditional representative, you know, director government to control uh, 
the whole law. And so there was a nickname uh, for the first law enacted. It's called uh, uh, bird's cage law, you know, like uh, uh, to confine a bird in the uh, in the cage. And uh, the restriction, you know, started from all dimension. You know, for example, uh, the uh, uh, the referential uh, ref referendum law should not touch any issue. Uh, with constitutional implications. And in Taiwan, you know, a big issue is how to change the constitution. And uh, then you have a lot of restriction, you know, for example, uh, uh, set very high uh, quorum for initiating a referendum uh, to adopt a referendum and so on. And uh, there was a, a, a slogan uh, by the uh, conservative force you know, a referendum can be adopted only more than one half of the electorate, you know, uh, participate, and then more than one half of the uh, 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 people voted, you know, approve the case. And it's almost impossible. It means, you know, with a population of 23 million, you need uh, about 9 million to pass a resolution. Uh, and then there are other uh, restrictions, you know, for example, uh, you know, how long you can have campaign for the referendum and so on. And therefore it was known as a uh, birth cage, you know, uh, 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 referendum law. And so during the early period, uh, you know, there was no referendum passed because it's not possible to reach the threshold. Uh, and then there was some revision in uh, 2018 to loosen up a little. But still, you know, the traditional force which tried to control uh, the constitutional stability uh, in Taiwan was very strong. And so there was a joke, you know, a cage, a birth cage uh, referendum law was uh, changed to uh, the so-called chicken, chicken cage, <laughs> you know, it's loosened up, you know, for example, you can uh, have fewer people to endorse and to uh, adopt, uh, you know, reducing from one half of the electorate to one quarter of electorate and so on. But then you still have other mechanism to control the uh, uh, referendum, you know, for example, uh, certain issues are excluded uh, and then uh, you need review by a committee. And so a committee can decide if uh, a, a referendum, you know, for the entire population. And, and so we are still debating a lot, you know, how uh, our law, uh, referendum law uh, can be more liberalized and reasonable. And in this case, uh, we would have to learn a lot, you know, from the Switzerland, uh, uh, Swiss practice or other European Union uh, practice. And uh, so we are still making a lot of efforts. Uh, you know, we are making progress, but I would say, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. still very uh, uh, hectic. Mm -hmm. Well, that's very helpful to, to sort of hear from the beginning to now how it's changed over time. And um, surely we'll have many more tweaks in the years to come. And that's partially what we're hoping to to figure out in this conversation is how to get it right. Um, so David, 
you have argued that while some direct democracy efforts have a positive effect in democratizing politics, others are backward looking as they tend to boost the power of politicians instead of that of the people. Um, would you explain with examples and how do we guard against the backward looking version? It, it, it's, it's really hard uh, to delimit exactly where, when direct democracy becomes a boomerang or a democratizing force. But for sure, we can start that there are different institutions of direct democracy. And the very first division that we can make is whether direct democracy comes from the citizens through a process of signature gathering, or it comes from authorities because some sort of combination of authorities, executive and legislative want to ask the people something. Uh, usually these last ones, the ones that come from authorities, uh, could be misused more easily than those that come from the citizen. Let's put the examples of uh, Putin during this year or Alpha Conde in Guinea, you know, uh, that they just reset the term limits clock to zero in a couple of plebiscites. Uh, so definitely that's direct democracy and people support them with broad majorities, but these are not exactly democratizing forces or institutions. There have been abused by quasi or authoritarian leaders. When they come from citizenry, it's absolutely different the story because you can go against a law that has recently approved through a referendum. If I, I'm using now the Swiss uh, language, right? Or you can change the statu quo through a popular initiative. And both decisions are, I mean, people can make mistakes. We can make mistakes as citizens but we can fix them. And that's the, the little trick of the whole thing of direct democracy. When it, comes, when it comes from above, you have to be concerned. That's my point. And if, if it's used in that way, democracy as such, as a large regime, could be undermined. And that's a problem, a big problem. Yeah. So I, I, I'll, I'll, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just so deeply agree with what David said, and I just wanted to add a, a couple thoughts, you know, onto that. And if I heard the question right, Kathleen, it's like, how do we make sure that when we're doing direct democracy, it honors the kind of intentions around that, and it's not like co-opted? And so just to be clear about those intentions, we're talking about making sure that folks are able to um, live healthy and thriving lives. And what we're up against is oftentimes systems that are really oppressive. And that system, that oppressive system that's been around for a long time defends itself really well. And so as we think about what direct democracy is, we need to understand that it's a real opportunity to move away from and imagine bigger than the status quo. And in order for us to do that effectively, more minds are going to be better than one. It's, it's going to allow us to see and understand blind spots, to really understand what equity is and to define equity in that space. Right now in, in my work and our work, we're really thinking about what 
democracy beyond elections is, what community control means, not just in the moment of an election, but beyond that. And for us, we think about this key principle that real democracy has to include decision-making that is accessible, significant, not trivial, and equitable. And just adding on to what David said, I think that those components are essential in order for direct democracy to really work and for us to shift, and we have to shift this, the us versus them narrative of like, who is government and who is community. Thank you for that. That's a helpful addition. Um, and I also wanted to piggyback on, on what you said, David, uh, because you, you talked about the citizen initiated um, measures as tending to be more successful or trustworthy. Um, but if they get something wrong, there's ways to fix it. So can you talk about that? Let's say uh, an, an initiative passes in California or in Switzerland, and it's a good idea, but it's not quite um, perfectly executed. What are the mechanisms that can be used at that point to um, make sure that it succeeds once it's enacted? Well, you can always make another popular initiative or a referendum against any law articulating that previous popular initiative. The problem here is that the devil is in, on the details, right? And I wouldn't point out California as the most virtuous example of direct democracy, actually, because uh, there is what it has been called the, pop, the, the, the initiative industry, right? In a place where you can buy signatures and you pay signatures gathering, uh, the gatherers, uh, where uh, money exerts such a degree of influence in a campaign. I think that uh, all the virtuosity of the potential system of direct democracy somehow gets undermined. So you have to be really careful, not only in the broad idea of, oh yeah, we can do, we can make a popular initiative, we can go against a recently approved law through, with a referendum, but also the way that you put this institution, these mechanisms on practice are ex it's an extremely important to study. For instance, what I say, the length of the campaign, uh, the role of the money in this campaign is the level of the, the, the game. Uh, it's the playing, the playing uh, field level. Uh, I mean, there are so many details that it's extremely hard to say this is the most important one. It's a combination of institutional details and aspects that uh, through these glasses, we can foresee how successful this process is gonna be. Of course, Switzerland is absolutely different than the American experience and particularly the Californian one because Oregon, for instance, it's a complete different world, right? And Oregon uses as much direct democracy as Californians, but that's a completely different story. Or we can go to Latvia or Italy or Uruguay. Each one has a different story with democracy. But of course, the power of citizens is always there and we should consider it. Great, well, thank you. We'll, we'll dig some more into those individual countries and states um, as we go on, because we do want to get into those devilish details. Mm -hmm. um, but Greta, I want to turn back to Mexico because uh, Mexican President Lopez Obrador is currently pushing for 
one, a referendum that would pro could prosecute former presidents, and two, a referendum that mm -hmm. could end up keeping him in power longer. So would you explain what's going on and um, what might we learn from these examples about potential perils of, of direct democracy? Yeah, sure. Uh, so as, as David said, uh, some, some politicians might use direct democracy in the wrong ways. So the Mexican president is a big fan of direct democracy. Uh, it has helped him in the past to gain allies and to gain popularity. And uh, the thing uh, that, that happens here is that he's, he's using it to his own purposes. So one of his main campaign promises in, in, in 2018, when he was a candidate, was that he would put in jail uh, some of the former Mexican presidents. And that was something that the general public really liked, of course, right? It was like, yes, we're going to see this horrible uh, genocidal ex-president in jail. And that, that was something that he, that he found a lot of echo in, in the public. Uh, and then, of course, um, he, he came to power and he kind of forgot about it for a while. And now his popularity is going down uh, for several reasons, including the COVID response and, well, a lot of things. Uh, so lately, uh, he came back uh, to his idea of, of having the, the former president uh, go through trials uh, for criminal grounds. Uh, he actually gave us a list of the criminal charges that he's <laughs> going to present. But, and he did it uh, in, in the way of a public consultation, which uh, is kind of weird because you, like according to Mexican law, there, there are several things that you cannot subject to public consultation, and one of them is human rights, and another one it has to do with judicial issues, right? You cannot have a consultation on criminal matters. I mean, that's why we have like a division of powers, but that doesn't matter. Like for the president, that there's no division of powers. There, like, not there's no. That's not important. So basically what he said, uh, he, he, he went out and he told the public that uh, he wanted the people in Mexico to put the, the ex-president in jail. So, it, it, so the consultation was not longer about getting them through the justice system to jail. It was like sign here to get them to jail. So the question in the in the in the in the signing uh, booths it says do you want these people and, and like their names to go to Yale yes or no and if you say yes you sign here right so that's not exactly direct democracy that is manipulation uh, if if I if I cannot use like stronger words I will say manipulation and um, and that is very dangerous because. Of course, you cannot subject a criminal procedure to a public consultation. And the public will know that, that it has nothing to do with this consultation, right? So then people in Mexico will kind of stop believing that direct democracy is something that they can use to change the things that, that they don't like. They will, of course, associate it with political issues and with political campaigns and that is a very 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 not cool thing and then the other one that you said is um so so the president uh when he when he started being uh the president he said that of course if the mexican population doesn't want him anymore as a president he will 
step down and he uh, enacted well not not he but like uh the the congress enacted a law for mandate recall but uh in very interesting terms so the first idea was that the the mandate recall was was to take place the same day as the midterm elections which in mexican law uh cannot happen because then he would be like campaigning for 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 being uh well not 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 recalled to for, for people to decide that he has to go on but then also um he could actually use this mandate recall to stay in power and that that's really really dangerous um and thank fully the the congress did not let him enact the law as he wanted because he wanted to like like he wanted the president to have the power to ask for his mandate recall and now uh only citizens can can ask for that which is great but still i i think uh this president and his party are using direct democracy in their in their benefit and and that is manipulation and that is not right well, those are a couple of really illustrative examples. Um, the first one showing, I think, that uh, what is on the ballot when a voter ha takes five minutes to say yes or no, often isn't nuanced enough, let alone whether or not it's appropriate for it to be the public's decision. Um, but it may not be nuanced enough, um, clumping a whole bunch of names together, for example, as opposed to parsing them out one by one. And then your point about um, not wanting to muddy the reputation of direct democracy seems like a, a critical one um, and one that I think everyone on this call is committed to. So we'll, we'll try to figure out how to determine, you know, best practices um, in, in some more countries. Um, and on that note, turning back to Taiwan, Michael, um, why do you think, I know that you've spoken of the challenges so far, but still that Taiwan still has been a leader um, in direct democracy. And I'm wondering why, what is it about Taiwan? Is it that it's a, a newer democracy or its proximity to China? I mean, what, what is it that has made Taiwan so um, forward thinking in this, in this way? Well, it's a very interesting question why we are moving you know, in the direction of uh, either representative democracy or, uh, you know, participatory uh, democracy. Uh, probably there are some historical background I have to emphasize uh, because, uh, you know, Taiwan used to be under uh, Japanese colonial rule. And then at the end of World War II, you know, it was uh, given to uh, uh, China without you know, consulting the opinion uh, of the local population. And then Chiang Kai-shek, you know, moved from China, defeated by the communists to Taiwan and really carry out a highly authoritarian, you know, control uh, uh, in Taiwan for uh, about 40 years after World War II. Uh, but I think luckily, you know, Taiwan's economy developed well and particularly uh, with the uh, 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 support of the United States. Uh, you know, a lot of uh, students uh, went to study in the U.S. and really appreciate uh, the kind of democratic system developed in the U.S. Uh, and when they returned, you know, including myself, I studied <laughs> uh, at Cornell uh, and, and then returned to Taiwan. You know, we have a sort of commitment you know, Taiwan should change from authoritarian system 
uh, to a, a more civilized, you know, liberal democratic system. And uh, of course, the process is not easy. You know, in Taiwan, we have the so-called white terror. A lot of uh, intellectuals and the students were arrested and put in jail or, or shot to death. Uh, uh, but I think uh, lots of uh, uh, people continue to fight, uh, to struggle, and the sacrifice. Uh, and then at the end of uh, 1980s, uh, I think the uh, authoritarian government find, you know, the whole situation is changing. And so, you know, after the death of Chiang Kai Shek's son, Jiang Jingguo, uh, you know, Taiwan become. Uh, uh, more liberalized. Uh, and uh, so the history is not too long, you know, about 30 years or so. Uh, but I think the commitment uh, of the intellectual leadership and the political leadership and willing to really sacrifice for the cause of uh, democratic government uh, is very important. And so I would say there is some change in you know, Taiwan's uh, political culture, you know, uh, uh, civil uh, uh, society uh, and so on. Uh, but the remnant of, uh, you know, authoritarian <laughs> element continue to uh, exist in Taiwan. Uh, and so uh, Taiwan is still going through uh, a very, you know, uh, uh, tough, you know, political uh, struggle. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, for example, introduction of uh, participatory uh, democracy, you know, emulating the Western, you know, particularly European uh, switch uh, model and, uh, you know, local government in the US and so on, uh, is very much interested uh, in Taiwan. Uh, but uh, there are still conservative forces which try to argue you know, uh, in indirect uh, representative democracy is okay, it's working. And uh, if you don't really have good base for uh, participatory democracy, for example, uh, develop a set of uh, 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 new value orientation and uh, empower the people uh, to stand firm on their direct participation and so on. You know, though, as I mentioned earlier, the law is still mixed. You know, in some way, try to maintain the traditional uh, direct, uh, indirect system, you know, representative government and argue it's doing fine. And don't bring the new element uh, into confusion. And that's the reason, you know, even though we have a, a referendum law uh, for participatory uh, democracy, uh, but the the content is still very mixed. Uh, for example, a lot of national issues were uh, ruled out for any uh, uh, participation, only the local level. Uh, and uh, that's maybe okay, you know, in terms of process uh, mm -hmm. of development. Uh, but uh, as you know, you know, Taiwan's uh, uh, international status is still very much in question. And as you mentioned, China is still carrying out military, you know, harassment uh, on Taiwan on a daily basis, and particularly at this uh, time of uh, uh, coronavirus and uh, U.S.-China uh, tension and so on. And right. so we 
uh, doing all right, uh, but we still have to really have a large number of people trying to, number one, establish uh, active civic culture in Taiwan. Number two, you know, develop a civic community, you know, stronger. Yeah, and, so so I, I hear I hear you saying that there's there's a sort of a particular commitment to democracy, partially because of the history of knowing what it's like to not not have lived under direct democracy, but that the tension still exists and the threat still exists. Um, but yeah. I do want to turn back and and kind of make a comparison now to the U.S. Sherry, um, I'm wondering, you know. I'm just wondering why the U.S. is such an outlier as one of the few democracies never to have had a national referendum on anything. Um, John uh, Matsusaka at USC is a proponent of creating advisory referenda in the U.S. to try to get resolution on popular legislation that stalls, such as the DREAM Act, for example, or on major international decisions, say, on um, the Paris Climate Agreement. So what are your thoughts on this idea? And yeah, easy. Yeah, easy question. Um, <laughs> well, I'll just say this. I think that there are some real realities that we have to face and acknowledge, like in the United States. And this question is like, why are we, you know, an outlier? And I think that there is like a long history of slavery, of of really harmful um, oppression like in community that has existed for a long time. So in this moment of like, well, what does reckoning look like or what does right-sizing or what does referendum look like? I think there's this, this first bit of being like, hey, folks need to be met where they are. Inequity doesn't just like happen overnight. And what we've experienced in the United States, but also across the world, like let's, let's just talk about it. Like the conversation right now um, in the United States about, what is happening in terms of power dynamic and how that plays out in community is it, everyone across the globe is talking about it. And especially in the United States, we're thinking about, you know, like the death of George Floyd, what happened in the court system, the murder of Breonna Taylor, and then the result of that, this conversation about accountability, but deep systemic inequity that harms folks. I think that I said this before, there is like this default to the status quo. And Michael just talked about this, that folks are like, well, this is the way that it works. This is the way that it has been working. This is how, and it works for a select few, but not very many. So look at the work that public agenda has put out about the United States and what people say that they need and want. Over half of Americans in the United States say, we really need more participatory democracy. And what we're up against is making the case for it. The case has been made. And now, in order to remove this outlier status, there are some brilliant folks that are leading work across the country so that we not only see referendum changes, but that we see culture changes that are codified and allow us to thrive as people. And that's not one law. And, the, and that is a real recognition of systemic change that has to happen that's driven by community members. And it's not going to be one change. It has to evolve like we evolve in community. And so I think that this idea of government has to evolve with us as a people. That's where we are in the United States. That's where we are absolutely across the globe. But 
this question of like why we are an outlier, I'm like, that is a historic and deep question. I am a, I'm a person that's black and indigenous. And when I think about my family's generations of history in the United States, what we're up against is, is heavy. We have experienced deep inequity. Right, so, so the voices that have been excluded before could, could be included more through, through direct democracy. And, and we certainly have a history of excluding voices in this country. Well, um, I think the bigger piece is we can't get it right unless those voices that have been traditionally historically excluded are at the center. Mm -hmm. Yes, um, thank you for that. Um, David, I wanted to ask, I'm wondering about the tyranny of the majority risk. Um, there's many examples of this, but in 2009, for example, uh, the minaret ban referendum in Switzerland passed, even though it was at odds with freedom of religion. Um, and so there's a disconnect between direct democracy and human rights in, in that case and, and in others. So perhaps one solution is to have the courts review whether a proposal is constitutional or not before it goes to the ballot, or, or what ideas do you have? How might we protect against the tyranny of the majority? It's, it's extremely hard to answer that question. Uh, it's a risk of direct democracy. It's the most evident, bluntly majoritarian institution we can dream of, where one vote makes the whole difference. So we have to be aware of that implication, for instance, in the minarets, uh, and not only the minarets, I mean, there are several examples in uh, Switzerland, in Liechtenstein, even in California, in Oregon, in so many places where reactionary, conservative, backwards facing looking people won. I mean, first of all, before we start to play this game, we have to really ask ourselves, are, are, are you ready really to accept an adverse result, a deeply adverse result, thinking your worst adversary in politics and think on that group of people winning and in putting their agenda on the table and winning? Are you ready to accept that? If you are, well, okay, that's fine. I mean, one, today you are a majority, the next day the other guys are gonna be a majority. I wanted to say that we have to be really careful in starting to play a little bit in connection with what just Sherry says. Uh, I mean, oppression and slavery and discriminations we have in every society. And as a matter of fact, the United States has problems, but many countries have many other problems. I mean, the United States still is a very powerful place. And I wanted just to, to make a, a, a yellow light in terms of we have to be extremely aware and beware of normative and voluntaristic views of democracy. <laughs> what they do is wrong because I don't like it. Well, doesn't work like that. So yeah, the dictatorship or the, the tyranny of the majority is a risk. It's a bluntly risk, and it has been used not only in, in the examples that you provide with the minarets and others in, in, in Europe, but in Latin America. In Latin America, we have a lot of experiences of uh, misuse of direct democracy in order for one power to bypass the other one, and usually it's the executive who tries to bypass the legislature. Uh, I would say that about more than 85% of the experiences with direct democracy 
have this taste in Latin America. Um, and they have been instrumentalizing many opportunities. And sometimes really neoconservative or neo-fascist, if you wish, win. Are you ready for that game? Are we ready for that game? So maybe you could use the minaret ban as an example. How would you, if you were in charge of, of the referendum process at the time, how would you have addressed that before it got to the ballot, after it got to the ballot? I mean, it's at odds with freedom of religion. So it, it, how do, what's the remedy for cases like that? I would say that the remedy would be a constitutional review, a pre-constitutional review before the vote qualifies to the ballot. Uh, but you have to be also careful that the minarets was justified not because of freedom of religion, because, but because of environmental issues, because of the noise of the minarets. So there was a very uh, uh, tricky uh, dimension of the minarets. Of course, they would say, no, Switzerland open to any religion. We love everyone here. We are the most pristine democracy in the world. We know what was behind that, but it was defended on the basis of environmental issues, which are harder because who, who doesn't say, no, I don't want to defend environment. So, you know, uh, maybe Greta has a, a word or two on that, but you can twist the law somehow everywhere, everywhere. <laughs> you know, it's not that hard. And then the fight is on the courts. So prevent. So it's so. Oh, uh, well, I just want to clarify what you're saying. You're you're saying in that instance you would um, prevent it from reaching the ballot by taking it to the courts beforehand, rather than taking it to the courts after the vote. Actually, in Bolivia works that way. In order for you to qualify a popular initiative or a referendum against a law, you first need an acceptance of the electoral power, independent power of Bolivia, which includes the judiciary. And once they say, you can go ahead, you can go ahead to gather the signatures, blah, 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 blah and all the process triggers. I mean, you start the process with a few hundred signatures, then you receive the okay. And if you received okay, you go through the whole process. But it's unlike the United States that after the vote was approved, you go to the courts. And it's not like Switzerland in which basically the tyranny of the majority for the good and the bad works. Got it. Thank you for yeah, yeah. clarifying that. Yes, Greta, go ahead. Yeah, so in at least in the Mexican case, I, I have to say that I would love to feel under the danger of being under the tyranny of the majority. When we talk about uh, direct democracy in Mexico, uh, it, people don't even know it exists, so no one participates. So the, the last, the last uh, public consultation that we had on, on participatory budgeting, we had a 5.6% turnout. So really for us, that, that, that would not be a problem, at, at least right now. Uh, but I have to say that also the power of information has to play a key role here. And of course, Switzerland has the, 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 <laughs> has the answer for everything. And of course, for the consultations in Switzerland, everyone gets like this super nice booklet with all the information and stuff. 
here in Mexico, we don't get anything, right? So here in Mexico, actually, the, the consultation questions are manipulated. And the, the, the question is, do you want the former president to go to Yale if you do sign here? So that is totally uh, against democracy. So I would say that we need uh, a more solid democracy. We need better citizens also, and we need more information in order to make the system, the democratic system resilient against these threats that can happen, of course, but, but, but also we can use the democratic uh, system, the, the, the direct democracy system, to get rid of them. I mean, Switzerland could have another minaret vote, right? Why aren't they doing that? Like, why is it not happening? So maybe, maybe it is the majority that really feels that way, which is wrong, of course, but why, why isn't anyone doing anything? They have the power to do it. They, they should just go and do it. Because right. they don't want. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's time for some audience questions now. I've been getting several in, and if you're uh, watching, you can um, add yours to the live chat. So um, the first one here is for Michael, and I'm just going to read it. It says, in Taiwan, the Referendum Act mandates the government must set up electronic signature collection. However, the electronic system being divined, designed has not been implemented, and it is designed to be user unfriendly. Michael, could you tell us about this? <laughs> well, um, you know, one point I try to emphasize is that uh, for the introduction of new ideas and new mechanism, new technology, uh, often there are controversy or even resistance. And so, uh, you know, in Taiwan, probably uh, we are one of the uh, uh, country which use uh, uh, internet a lot and uh, iPhone and so on. And so it's, it should be easy to uh, conduct uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, participatory uh, 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 democracy through uh, internet. And uh, at the local level, there were some, you know, experiments already going on, uh, you know, on the issue of, uh, uh, you know, the, the use of uh, nuclear power or not, and so on. And so it, it's fine. Uh, I think the law is already uh, adopted. Uh, it's a question of implementation. And we have a minister which, uh, who specializes very much uh, on the uh, technical side of the question. So I'm sure it's going to be a trend. You know, one technical question I'd like to raise is that uh, when you have the popularity of internet, uh, it can be used for positive purpose, you know, such as participatory uh, democracy. But on the other hand, uh, as we discussed uh, earlier, you know, you have a lot of authoritarian leaders try to manipulate uh, uh, technology for their populism. And, and this is a very uh, serious question. And also there are intervention <coughs> uh, of domestic politics uh, in Taiwan, you know, from uh, external sources, uh, particularly China. Uh, and uh, so when you have this uh, great technology and abuse or misuse, <laughs> then it's really a challenge. But I think the trend is going to be there, you know, increasing use of, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, internet 
uh, technology uh, for uh, policy, uh, particular, particularly for uh, 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 you know, participatory uh, democracy. Uh, but how to prevent the abuse and misuse? That's a, another you know, challenge issue we have to deal with. Right, well, um, we'll, be, we'll be watching that closely as it develops. Uh, let's see, I have one here for um, David, uh, David, excuse me, David. How common is direct democracy now? And why do we see it in so many countries at a local level or a provincial level and so rarely at a national level? Well, I, I, I'm not sure that you, I mean, of course, to make a, a a vote at the neighborhood level or at the municipal level is much easier than to do it at the national level. Uh, and they don't get as publicized as the national ones because usually the national ones, the big ones are on constitutional matters or national laws that really are important for a whole population. Whereas the, the local ones are neighborhood oriented and more, I mean, by definition local. Right, uh, we have about um, between 30 and 80 in the last years mechanisms of direct democracy in the world, uh, which makes about 0.3, on average, 0.3, 35 um, mechanisms of direct democracy per country year. Uh, statistics here play a really tricky uh, game because it depends how. How do you count countries? How do you count mechanisms of direct democracy? Uh, one thing is the, the, the exact amount of votes realized or the attempts of votes, right? Because sometimes, and here it's one of the very interesting paradox of direct democracy, the most successful evident successes of direct democracies when you don't see it is when you threatening the authorities to change their course of action. Otherwise, you make a referendum or otherwise you make a popular initiative and they say, oh, you know what? I'm going to change before I lose in, a, in the ballot box. So they change policy. So you won at the beginning. So direct democracy, despite that you didn't see it, has been extremely important in how politics evolve in that society in that moment, right? So uh, yeah, it's a matter of technicalities. It's easier to, to launch a local initiative than a national initiative for sure. Um, and that's it, it's, it's a matter of numbers. Mm -hmm. oh, makes sense. Um, thank you for that. Uh, Sherry, there's a question that I actually wanted to ask earlier um, because of your experience in participatory budgeting and then we'll do, and then we'll do another audience question. Um, and it's it, it's it's about time, you know. It's it, it may be difficult for some to engage in participatory processes. Um, for example, if you have a demanding job, or if you are a caregiver at home, or if your mobility is limited. So, for the more um, time-intensive processes like the budgeting, um, participatory budgeting, that's more than just showing up at a ballot for a minute. Um, how do we ensure that we're making those processes accessible to people from all swaths of life? And also, what about the idea of making um, some of them mandatory, like jury duty, um, but with various ways to get excused if you're unable? Well, I think that we have to change the question a little bit, right? 
and I mentioned before, like I would love to be able to say democracy and for everyone to hear when I say that participatory democracy. I would like for that not to be a distinction. Like that is a future that I want to live into. And something that Greta said really struck me. I'll take too much democracy as a problem any day. That 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 real challenge of like too much um, collective power and tapping in and engaging people so deeply that they show up to have conversations with each other about what's happening. I'll, I'll take that as, as a problem for us to solve. And when we get close to needing to solve that problem, I will be really excited about that reality. I'm like, usher that in, let's all manifest that now. Now, if you're asking me, how do we make sure, like what are the steps that we take to ensure equity? The, the real challenge is the question because we shouldn't be asking me, we should be asking community. And you're naming people specifically that have been historically and traditionally excluded. What about folks that um, don't speak the the language right in that particular neighborhood maybe they speak a different language and that wasn't their first language maybe they um are hearing impaired maybe they have been a part of a historically marginalized group like black trans women for example so how do we make sure that they have access and safety to shape a process we have to meet them where they are and what better way to meet someone where they are than invite them into the design because to be quite frank, Sherry Davis doesn't have the answer, but I know who does. And I think that as a culture, as a society, we have to change the way that we even consider engaging, shaping, and making decisions. That's why I mentioned a second ago that when we think about democracy beyond elections, not only is it a social attitude, but this for us is a specific campaign that we launched so that people can do exactly what I said, take the tools and resources around them, shape their reality, engage others in that conversation so that they can be set up for success, whether they're at an organization, whether they're a member of community, whether they're an elected official. How often have we seen elected officials get voted into office that have really great, big and important visionary ambitions, but they're not set up for success they're not set up to make real moves. They're not set up to facilitate community process. So imagine a reality where that was true. Democracy Beyond Elections is a campaign where folks can take up that mantle together and shape that reality, where we can answer those questions in real time as a team. And it has to happen that way. Equity doesn't look the same in two communities, never mind like two places in different parts of the country. It has to be customized and we have to turn to folks in short, what I'm trying to tell you, Kathleen, we have to do things different and there's precedent for it. Well, I hear you and I appreciate you um, articulating so well that the vision that you, that you have and the campaign that you're working on. Um, so back to an audience question that's specifically for you, Greta, um, and it relates to what we were talking about earlier. Um, what do you think of Mexican President Lopez Obrador's consultas like the vote on a small number of Mexicans um, that led to the killing of an airport. Um, are they really democratic? So maybe you can tell us about that airport and, and some of the other uh, instances that this uh, audience member might be thinking of. Yeah, so I really think they're not democratic. I think uh, he's using his um, He's using, he's using his popularity to legitimize the decisions that he already took. So this airport thing was one of his uh, campaign promises as well. 
And uh, since he saw that a lot of people agreed with this idea of canceling the, the, the airport, so just a little bit of context, we were building a new airport in Mexico because we really need, needed it. And uh, so he said that it was very expensive and that we should use that money for something else. Uh, in reality, canceling the, the airport was more costly than keeping the project going, but that, that's not important, right? I mean, like the public doesn't need to know that. So he launched a consultation. Uh, that was one of the first things that he did uh, saying, hey, do you want us to spend this um, much amount of money in a stupid airport or do you want to like save that money and, and use it for like the benefit of the people? And that the question was framed like that. And the consultation was made you know, like in, in, in ballots that look like this, you know, like, like, I mean, it was like plain photocopies, you didn't need any kind of like identification, uh, people were were documenting how they could vote like eight times. And the, the interesting thing is that when the results of this consultation came, it was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna just make up numbers, but it was like, I don't know, 100,000 people said yes, like a round number. And 42 said no. So of course we are canceling the airport, right? So it's it's a charade. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, it sounds. I would laugh if it was not so painful for me, you know. So I really think that that the 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 things that he's doing around direct democracy are really harmful and are really dangerous. And I think that the Mexican public is going to be really really disappointed with with direct democracy if we do not show them the real power that we can attain through direct democracy. So I have, me and a lot of my colleagues have a lot of work to do here in Mexico because we need to um, go uh, very deep and teach the, the Mexican public that that is not how direct democracy works and that there is actually a lot of things that we can change for the good of, of all our country by using direct democracy. But right now it's a charade and, and it's really, really painful. Yeah. Greta one quick thought, sorry, Kathleen, I just wanted to add on that, this, this idea of narrative shift and how important it is, because we are talking about a thing that not a lot of people have had an opportunity to experience. Before I experienced participatory budgeting in Boston, I had done so much deep engagement and community work that I thought was really great. But until I had an opportunity to experience this very different thing that we're talking about, it hadn't clicked for me that it was even possible. And so I think that there's a very real need to, to really hear what, what Greta is saying about this opportunity to really shift narrative, raise the profile of this work and allow folks to experience it. And I, I just think that that's so important. And I didn't want to miss that really important point. Got it. Thank you. It's, it's really helpful to add that. Um, Michael, question for you. And I think this is going to be our last question. Um, are there certain types of issues that are better suited for certain types of democracy? Uh, so in other words, are there certain types of topics that need long discussion among representatives and percolation over time, more in line with representative democracy, versus certain types of topics that rep uh, representatives should put to a referendum? And then other types of topics that you know, um, Debbie talked about the top down and the bottom up. So the last one would be other types of topics that won't ever be discussed unless they're forced onto the ballot by citizens. So I, I'm wondering if there's a distinction in, in types of topics or not. Could, could you parse through that a bit? Well, uh, 
uh, in my mind, they are basically, you know, uh, two types of uh, 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 referendum or initiative. One is related to uh, the national level, uh, and uh, that, you know, would have a bigger uh, category to talk about. And then the other type is local uh, level, and uh, they, how they differentiate. You know, uh, in, in many Asian countries, you know, you have a serious uh, issue on uh, constitutional democracy, you have issue of national independence, uh, you have uh, issue related to uh, international trade and so on. Uh, but for that kind of issues, to what extent is suitable, you know, for uh, public uh, participatory uh, uh, process without really detailed uh, education uh, and lots of efforts to develop, you know, uh, political, right kind of political culture, uh, racial harmony, and so on. So, uh, you know, it's dependent on the condition of the countries. Uh, at the lower level, <clears throat> uh, something like a budgetary uh, democracy and so on, you know, uh, to me, it's also require, you know, a lot of education. And so, for example, in our discussion of uh, participatory democracy in Taiwan, uh, we have a lot of technical issue, you know, uh, as you are suggesting, how to divide uh, national issue in terms of Taiwan's uh, uh, complete independence and so on, uh, change the constitution and so on. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, for the local level, it's easier. And, and so here, uh, probably uh, a differentiation between national issue and local issue are important. Uh, and uh, then you have a lot of other uh, detail as well. You know, for example, when do you want to conduct uh, 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 initiative and referendum uh, voting in connection with national election or local election, uh, whether you should mix the election and you know, uh, referendum and so on. They are very uh, complicated. And in this regard, uh, I would like to uh, appeal, uh, you know, uh, especially like uh, David, you know, uh, and uh, my friends, uh, 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 you know, uh, Bruno uh, Kaufman, <laughs> who has this uh, passport, a uh, global passport to modern direct democracy. Uh, but I, I discussed with uh, Bruno before, you know, it, it's good, but uh, this uh, passport is a little bit uh, too uh, brief, too short, and uh, uh, didn't really deal with uh, the kind of issue you raise, how you differentiate issues, a different uh, level of uh, voting and so on. So I, I would appeal if, uh, uh, you know, some scholars or some organization like a global forum can really uh, produce a detailed, uh, you know, uh, handbook uh, on direct democracy uh, to give uh, suggestion guidance, you know, to the practice uh, and uh, uh, attempt of uh, direct democracy. It should be very important uh, uh, contribution to the movement. Yeah. Okay, I, I said last question, but I lied. This is the last question, um, and it's an audience question for David. Um, it's a big, big question, a big, big idea. 
so it's out there. Um, but the most critical, uh, you know, topic of them all, perhaps climate change. Does the global challenge of climate change deserve a global referendum on collective action to win World War Zero? So the, the, audi the audience member doesn't elaborate on that, but I'm imagining um, it could be put for, if there was a global refer uh, initiative, it could be put for a vote at the UN General Assembly. Um, maybe there's another way to do it. I mean, I, I, I wish I could answer that question. I wish I had some ideas, but since we have no global government, since we have virtually no global institution, because even the United Nations is not a sovereign uh, institution where composed by equal members, you know, they have the Security Council, you have this group of insiders, outsiders, etc. So yeah, it's a very romantic idea to have all the seven billion human beings voting on how to solve our problems, but it's unfeasible. I mean, it's an utopia at this moment, at least. It's something that it's it's cool. I would I would say yeah, it's it's quite romantic, but it's absolutely impossible at this moment. Uh, what I wanted just to, to say, and probably it's maybe to round out what I said before, is that we don't have any institutional sil silver bullets uh, to solve democracy, democratic deficits. You know, democracy is a multidimensional phenomenon, and uh, we can improve some dimension here, some dimension there, but there is no silver bullet. It's impossible. Even a direct democracy in its very good version has its problem. Representation has its problem. Any aspect of democracy has problems and different views, and that's the important thing. And that's why I say before, we have to be really careful and beware on, on normative and romantic and voluntaristic versions of what democracy should be. Democracy for you should be this, and for me it should be something else. So uh, we have to agree that at least in the mechanisms of how to solve our differences. Uh, but global direct democracy, it's virtually impossible when we can't even talk about a national referendum or a popular initiative in the United States. Imagine. Okay, well, yeah, I, th I, think, I, I think your statements um, do a good job of rounding out a lot of a lot of this conversation, which um, seems to be revealing that um, it's a case by case uh, matter with direct democracy. That implementation is key. We're still working out how to implement um, effectively, and checks and balances, of course, uh, matter so much to, to with both bottom up initiatives and top down referendums. So, including you know courts um, as as a check uh, check and balance. So. Um, I think we're going to close here for, for tonight. I'm sure uh, most of you are eager to watch the first presidential debate coming up shortly. So I wanna let, let everyone get to that. Um, but thank you so much to all four panelists for this fascinating, really important conversation and to our audience for these excellent questions. We really got a lot of, a lot of questions that came in. And um, if you'd like to refer back to this video, it will be published on Zocalo's site, ZocaloPublicSquare.org and as a podcast. Um, and you'll be able to read a summary of the discussion, short interviews with our panelists, and many other topics. 
once again, we would like to mention that this conversation concludes this year's online forum for modern direct democracy presented by Democracy International. So thank you to all of our speakers for sharing your unique insights and experiences with us. And to our audience, thank you for tuning in. Thank you.